So 1 Thessalonians 4. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on love and faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. I'm just going to pray for Johnny as he comes up to preach to us. Um, Father God, thank you that we can gather here this morning. Thank you that we can gather freely to listen to your word. I pray for Johnny. I thank you for all of the hard work that he's put into preparing for this morning. I pray that as he speaks to us, it would be you speaking to us, that he would be saying what it is that you long for us to hear. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would have open hearts and open minds to hear what you're saying to us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, uh, Nikki. So as, as Callum and as uh, Micah said, it is the start of Advent today. And effectively, that's the four-week countdown to Christmas. And it's a season in the historic church calendar of spiritually preparing for Christmas. It's a time of longing and waiting, and it's a time of expecting, looking forward to and uh, hoping for the coming of a saviour, of a rescuer, the dawning of light from heaven in the midst of the darkness in the deep, dark winter of life in this fallen world. Oh, I love it as a, as a season, uh, as does Micah, obviously. He was quite excited earlier, wasn't he? Because it's a mini parable of the Christian life, the entire Christian life. Christians are those who live expectantly, who long for the coming of a saviour from heaven, the new dawn of light and life and hope in a difficult and a dark world as we live in the shadow of one great certainty in life, and that is death. Everyone, everyone comes face to face with death, and everyone has to find answers and figure a way to cope. Just yesterday, I was, I was talking to my father-in-law at a family Christmas do, and, and we were reflecting about the sad passing of various family members over the years and in recent days, even as we celebrate Christmas. That's life, isn't it? 
And you discover the true worth and, and the true value of, of a worldview. That's the basic story of the world that people believe and so shapes how they live their lives. You, you discover the basic, uh, the, 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 the true worth and value of that and how any worldview deals with death. Does what we ultimately believe and live by equip us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Or does it leave us hopelessly ill-equipped to cope. What I want us to grasp today is that the Christian story of the world and therefore Christian lives, we can have hope in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, you could summarize the sermon today in these words from this um, this famous and, I'd guess, bombastic German church leader from 500 years ago called Martin Luther. Now, he divides opinion, uh, but by all accounts, God used him in a very significant way. And this is one of my favorite uh, quotes that, that he said of Christians. He said, Christians are those who live as if Christ died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming again tomorrow. I hope you like, I think that just encapsulates what this sermon is about. Our scripture from 1 Thessalonians that, that Nikki read for us, love you to have it open on page 1188. It is all about why we can live like this, how to grab hold of this, and what it looks like to live like that in a practical way. How do we live as if Christ died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming again tomorrow? The whole point of this passage, and therefore the whole point of this sermon, is to encourage you with hope. Do you see that? As, as Nikki read it, look at 4 verse 18, and then again at 5 verse 11. The main thing we are to do is to encourage each other. And so I hope you're encouraged today. Now, how do we encourage one another? Well, we, we see that we encourage each other by knowing certain things and by, rem, by reminding each other of these things uh, that we know to be true. 4 verse 13, Paul writes, I don't want you to be uninformed. 5 verse 2, Paul reminds them of what you know very well already. I want to remind you of it. What are these things that we are to know as Christians so that we are to have this kind of hope? Well, basically it's this, it's the great news of who Jesus is, of what he has done, and what he is going to do. It's what we call the gospel, the good news story of Jesus. And that's why this is gospel-centered hope. We've been seeing through this series in 1 Thessalonians, haven't we, how the gospel, how the good news of Jesus makes a difference in all sorts of areas of life. We started by seeing how it makes a difference and how we reach out to others around us with the good news. We've seen it in, in, in our model and our expectation of leaders in the church and how the story of Jesus is to shape that for us. We've seen it in how we endure ourselves through the ups and the downs of life that we all go through. Last week we saw how that's to shape our lifestyles and how we live day by day. We've seen through this short series that, that the gospel, that the good news of Jesus is more than enough for all of life and so many different areas of life. And finally today, although not finally because we've got one more sermon, but today we see, uh, and uh, George has got much more to say next week, I know, we see that Jesus and the story of Jesus is also more than enough for our death. More than enough for our death. Now, it might sound like Billy Basics to you and kind of like, yeah, of course, of course. 
But it's concerning. And it's maybe surprising how many churches, how many preachers, how many ministries and how many Christians don't keep this, don't keep this gospel front and center. Don't keep banging on about Jesus and, and understanding and digging more deeply into what we have in him and, and who he is and what he's done for us. And, and so they end up moving away from it. Either just assuming it and kind of, yeah, of course, but not really talking about it anymore. Or, or sometimes redefining it, often subtly, often forgetting it, sometimes outright denying it. And when that happens, it leads to all manner of confusion in the Christian life and it robs people of hope. We need to live our lives as if these realities of Jesus, this gospel, are so real and so relevant that they shape our everyday reality. Jesus died yesterday. He rose this morning. He's coming again tomorrow. This is what shapes how I live today. And this text helps us to do that. It helps us to live alert and with hope in the face of the sure reality of death. And we see it in, in two different perspectives. So uh, here's the first perspective, and it is grieving with hope. And I just want to answer this question on this perspective. What do we need to know, and what do we need to be encouraged with? Remember, this is all about encouraging by knowing certain things to grieve with hope. So the Christians who uh, this was first written to about 60 AD, almost 2,000 years ago, in Thessalonica in northern Greece, they were having a hard time because they had heard and believed the amazing, life-changing news that in the resurrection of Jesus, Christians too are raised to new life. And Jesus would return to, uh, to bring his people into his eternal kingdom. And so they were really excited by this. It changed their lives and they were looking forward to it. We saw that earlier in the letter in 2 verse 19. Now at this very earliest stage of the Christian church, they assumed that that meant that none of them would physically die. And so Jesus was going to come back and they would all be living on the day that Jesus came back. So if that's what you're assuming and believing, you can imagine it gets pretty confusing and overwhelming when the guy who sat next to you in church last week has died, and he's no longer here. You start thinking, have we got this all wrong? Is Jesus good for his word? Is, is Jesus really alive, or is he dead? He doesn't seem to be delivering on, on what he's promised to us. And so there was this danger that these Christians would be plunged into this unrelenting grief, and they would lose all hope as they come face to face with the reality of physical death. And so Paul writes this letter, probably the first letter we've got written, just within about 20 years of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And he writes this letter to correct this misunderstanding. Verse 13, he doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who die so they don't grieve like others who have no hope. Now, let's just... Let's just note on this straight away. Let's kind of just press click on that. It's not that Christians shouldn't grieve. It's that Christians shouldn't grieve without hope. There's, there's a myth that I think in the church in this country, is kind of maybe in previous generations, that's maybe still kicking around, that Christians should not grieve or, or should never be sad or, or, or anything like that. But that's just not true. 
There is much to be sad about and grieve over in this world. But it is a distinctively Christian practice to grieve with hope. To not get lost in this bottomless pit of grief and despair and negativity, but find the firm footing of hope deep down in that dark pit. So it's not about being less sad, but having more hope. In fact, my theory is that Christians are uniquely well-placed of all people to do sadness and to do uh, grief and to do lament well without having to turn to empty platitudes and and vacuous kind of wish-fulfillment thinking. You know, in in Harry Potter, he's the one who dares to to proclaim the name Lord Voldemort because he's so confident that he will be overcome in the end. Well, because of Christ, Christians have a hope that goes deeper and a hope that burns brighter. So we do not need to be scared. We do not need to be scared to acknowledge the true horror of death, but we can go deeper into that cave of grief because we know that death is not the end. And in the end, it has been defeated by Christ. Now, this is certainly true for those who die in Christ. But more generally, I think this is true for all grief because even while we we deeply grieve the eternal realities of death. For us, ultimately, it has lost its sting. Death has lost its sting because of Christ. So, so what is it that we need to know? If we're to grieve with hope, what are we to know to grieve with hope? Well, there's two fours in this passage, verse 14 and 16, that are world and life-changing. The first one in 14, for we believe that Jesus died and he rose again. This happened in history. You see, here's the thing. It's not only that that's a remarkable claim in itself, that there was, there was a man who, who, who in real flesh and blood history died under the brutal uh, kind of Roman Empire on, on, on a cross, but then rose again from death back to life in a physical body, and hundreds of eyewitnesses saw and met him and, and, and attested to that fact and, and, and even went to their death defending the, the fact of that as a true thing in history. But there's something more than that. Not just that that happened and it's true, but there's something that's personal and incredible that flows from it, Paul writes. And so we believe, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. It gets personal. Jesus has defeated Death. And so for the Christian, death has been transformed into a sleep that Jesus will wake us from. This is an opportunity for all people that death is defeated and overcome. And so Christians who are grieving their loved ones who have died in Christ, they need not fear for Jesus will bring those loved ones with him at his coming. In fact, any Christians who are, who are left living when Christ returns will not precede those who have fallen asleep in death. They will be uh, awakened by their risen uh, and ever-living Lord uh, and will come with the living Christ. Uh, and then those who are alive are invited or drawn into his everlasting life. You might think that just sounds too good to be true. Well, I know it does. But see this, verse 15, it is according to the Lord's word. This is the promise of God himself. So believe the Lord's word and know that for Christ's people, death is not the end. But for Christ's people, death is little more than a sleep 
from which we are woken to a new and perfect world. For Christ died and rose again in history. That's a reason to grieve with hope. And the second one in verse 16 is this, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. Jesus will return again in history. That's a reason that we can grieve with hope. There is a great day coming at the end of history when the Lord himself, the one who holds the highest office in the whole universe, will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet call of God. This is, this is kind of a big moment being announced here. It's got authority and it's got urgency. It's when the, the announcer at a big fight uh, announces the two fighters are ready to go. Let's get ready to rumble. It's that moment. And on that day, the Lord will come down from heaven and the dead in Christ. What a lovely phrase. Even death doesn't break our union with him. We're still in Christ, even in death. The dead in Christ will rise first before those who are still alive and who are living in Christ, trusting in the Lord, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, it sounds like a scene from, from kind of, I don't know, Avengers or some sci-fi movie, doesn't it? And, but listen, it's going to be a real day. It's going to be a real day. And it's real events in flesh and blood history, just like Jesus' death and resurrection were. In fact, his death and resurrection in history are the evidence, are the good historical record that tells us that we know this day is surely coming. So don't be uninformed about this great day. There's many different views about exactly how this all works its way out, but one thing is clear. We don't need to get caught up in them now. Christ will return. Of that we can be sure. And as if that isn't enough, here's the thing that, that as I looked at this passage this week, I, I, I saw, and it just kind of, it just blew my mind. It's just spectacular about this. Christ is coming for his people. He's coming for us. See that in verse 17? Also, uh, chapter 2 and verse 10 in the second half of the passage, this whole thing culminates on that day in us, his people, being with the Lord forever. That's the whole point. Jesus is coming back from heaven to get his people and to take us to be with him uh, forever. That's his joy and his delight. There's this big myth that Christians often believe. That, that heaven is, is, is the eternal state that Christ has for us. It's the place that people live forever. And, uh, and kind of this place where we go and float on clouds or, or whatever else it is. But it's not. Heaven is the control room of the universe. It's the throne room of God. Heaven is the unseen reality that intersects with life in, in the seen and experienced reality here and now. Heaven is the paradise where those who have died in Christ go to be with him in, this, uh, in the moment of their death. Heaven is what you might call life after death. But what this passage points us to, what Christ has for his people forevermore, and what we are invited into is what the English theologian Tom Wright calls life after life after death. This is the life that follows the life of heaven. It is where Jesus brings heaven back down to earth. 
And he restores and renews and perfects this world as a, fit that is, uh, as, as a home that is fit for him and his people to live in forevermore, for all eternity. And at that point, both those who have died in him and those who are living in him will live with him in that place. That's the incredible promise of his words. And so with all of that in mind, and because of that, verse 18, encourage one another with these words so that you might grieve with hope. That's what Paul's doing here as he writes to these Thessalonian Christians who are all over the place as church member after church member dies. He says, look, know this is true. Encourage one another with these promises and, and this word of God. It will help you along the way. We often rightly emphasize the true value and importance of being present with people in grief. And we're, we're rightly wary of speaking too quickly and just coming in with kind of glib statements and platitudes when someone's really in, in, in a pit of grief. And that is right. But we must not let that keep us from bringing well-timed and carefully considered but true and dynamic words of hope and life into the valley of the shadow of death for our brothers and sisters who are grieving. We must encourage one another with these words. And this, this helps and gives us a framework with which we can do that. That's the first perspective, grieving with hope. And, and the second one is this, it is living with hope. Living with hope. And, and, and we need to ask a similar question. What do we need to know? And what do we need to be encouraged with? in order to live with hope. And this goes into chapter 5 now, verses 1 to 11. You see, a, a natural question that, that flows from, from, from all this is like, well, when will this happen? When will this happen? But listen, that's the wrong question. This passage is not giving us a map that we can kind of crack a code to work out when uh, the, the end times are coming or whatever. But verses 1 to 5 show us that it's not ultimately important when Jesus will come back, but that he will come, that really matters. And so we aren't to be surprised by it. Paul doesn't need to write about dates and times because the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Elsewhere, Jesus teaches that nobody knows the day or the hour where he will return. Not even Jesus himself at that time in, in his earthly life. It is God's alone to know. But what you can be sure about is that it will happen. It is inevitable, but unpredictable. It's a bit like the medical term spontaneous labor. For when a pregnant woman goes into labor naturally and without direct medical intervention and assistance, seemingly of her own accord. But listen, there's nothing spontaneous about it. It's the most expected thing in the world. It's been coming for nine months. It's just a question of when. It's going to happen. You just don't know when. And yet people will be caught off guard by this great and this terrible day. They'll be saying peace and safety when an inescapable destruction will come on them. Paul tells us that great day will be a day of wrath. That's the, the right and the good anger of God for all that is wrong and all that is unjust and evil in this world that leads to his right and good punishment. 
And there's a sense when Christ returns, that's what he brings with him. And so sadly, that day is a day of destruction for many. No doubt these are hard and these are weighty things. But I can only set forth here the the plain truth of God's word. The fact that this great day has not yet come should not lead us into a greater complacency, thinking, oh, this won't happen because it hasn't yet. It'd be foolish, wouldn't it, for a couple who are eight months pregnant to fail to anticipate the labor and the baby that follows, and so they neglect to prepare for what's coming. They don't go to the hospital classes uh, to, to help them through labor. They don't buy a cot and a pram or whatever else, and then they're totally caught off guard when suddenly the labor happens and, and, and there's a baby here, and they're not ready for that moment. The fact that this day has not yet come means that today is a day to get ready for it. It's a day to get ready. Today, the Bible says, is a day of rescue. Today is an opportunity for any who are not yet entrusting themselves to Jesus to throw their lot in with him and to be ready for the life to come. We read it, didn't we, in our, those of you who are doing the Bible reading plan, we read it this week in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. This is the promise of his return. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone. The Lord wants everyone to come to repentance. Today is the day for that. But for Christians too, We're not to become complacent, but we're to live in a state of readiness and alertness for this day so that it doesn't surprise us. For verses 4 and 5, we are children of the light and children of the day, not not of the darkness and of the night. When when I was trying to teach Elise something of the expectancy of uh, of Christ's return when she was about five years old, I would quite often say to her, at least Jesus could come tomorrow. Do you know that? Jesus could come tomorrow. And she would, she would reply to me, no, he can't come tomorrow, Daddy, because you said last night he could come today, and he didn't come today, so he can't come tomorrow. And, you know, she kind of lawyered me on it, didn't she? <laughs> and her, her logic seemed impeccable. It seemed impeccable, but, of course, it was foolish. For the fact that he didn't come today, if anything, increases the likelihood that he could come tomorrow. And Paul writes these words of Scripture, these words of God, so that we know very well that a great day is coming to end history as we know it. We don't know when it will happen, but we we can know it will happen, and he wants us to be ready. So what does it look like to be ready for this day? It's a natural question that follows on. But as I said, it's not to be obsessed with reading the signs of the times and looking up at the sky to make bold predictions on when the end of the world will come. No, verse 6 to 10 unfolds it for us. It gives us a different way of being ready. And and, and Paul picks up this imagery of being asleep again. Uh, But this time, he uses the imagery of sleeping to speak of of a, a spiritual death rather than a physical death. We're not to be spiritually asleep, spiritually sleepwalking through life, but to be spiritually awake and sober, he says, alive to the new life that Christ has saved us into. 
and, and the life that Christ will finally bring us into when he returns. You see, as much as that great day of Christ's return will be a great day of wrath, Paul says it's also going to be a day of salvation. The full and final rescue by Christ of God's people. To which you might think, what's that about? I thought as a Christian I was already saved and that's something that's already happened. You're talking about that happening in the future. Well, it's a bit of a yes and no. As Christians, uh, our experience of salvation unfolds over three phases in life. We, we have been saved, we are being saved in the present and we will be saved in, in the future. And this is our hope and joy, whether we are alive or, 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 or dead when Christ re- returns. He died for us and so he will return so that we may live together with him. Life to the full, lasting forever. That is our salvation that is coming. So what we are to do now is we are to live spiritually awake to the new life that Christ has saved us into. We're to live as children of light in the darkness of of the world. Listen, whether Christ comes tomorrow or Christ comes in a thousand years, that's what one of the teams said as we, as we discussed it this week. It doesn't really matter. We live the same way. We don't just bunker down and retreat from the world and, and kind of hold out until he returns. We don't just lie down and give up and go with the flow. But we live awake and sober. Being awake is a mental alertness. It's a mind readiness, a state of mind that by faith and correctly handling and believing God's word understands the season and the times in which we live understands what God's purposes are in the here and now, and so is ready and prepared to live faithfully, longing for Jesus' return to take us to be with him forever. It's being alert in our minds. Being sober is a moral category. It's of the heart. It's about self-control. It's about being watchful and on guard. Not being taken over or controlled by anything else, but living with self-control if you like, suiting up and equipping ourselves with the armor of God so that we stand firm and we live faithfully in these dark days, in faith and in love and in, you guessed it, hope. So let's live in the light of the day by the Spirit of Christ and let's live lives that are countercultural and that are different and that radically proclaim that there is another world to come and there is one coming to take us to that world and he is going to take us to be with him forever. That's what it looks like to be ready to live with hope. And so as we close, let me say again, following the lead of verse 11 there, encourage one another, and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. You see, we need each other in this. To encourage is to bring courage to another person. It's to come along to them and give them some strength and some resolve and some spirit and some hope. Christians are Advent people living with hope together, longing for the world to come in the valley of the shadow of death in this old world. And we need one another to do that. And we need courage. And we need hope. As this season of longing and expecting and waiting between the first and the second coming of Christ just in some senses draws on and draws on as our lives go on. You know, as Christmas gets closer, the excitement for a young child just kind of notches up day by day, doesn't it? You know, the Advent calendar day by day. 
How many more sleeps until Christmas, Daddy? How many more? We don't know when Jesus is coming back. But I do know that today we are one day closer than yesterday. One day closer with the weight of what his coming means. All of its glory and its salvation and all of its severity. Let's let the weight of that rest on our souls and let's let the joy of that rest on our souls. Today's one day closer. And let's take courage and let's take hope from the good news of who Jesus is, what he's done, what he's now doing, and what one day he will surely come and do. And let's live as if this is really true. Let's live as if Christ died yesterday, as if he rose this morning, and as if he is coming again tomorrow. And let's cry out in our souls, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's, let's pray, and then we're going we're gonna to put these, this into, into song together as we respond. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that you died and you rose in history and you promised to come again in history. Thank you that we can know these things to be true and they can be realities that shape our lives and give us hope. Would you help each of us to find that hope in you today and to live in that hope, ready for your coming? Prepare us, Lord, for it. And thank you for the joy of, everla- of everlasting life that we have to come with you and that you promise to your people. Amen.